Welcome, everybody, to Trail Tales. This is your host, Tom Funk. Thanks for joining me today. We are continuing my hike across Michigan's Upper Peninsula using as much as the North Country Trail as I can find or feel like using at the moment. It is July 29th, 1998, and I just spent the night at Courtney Lake National Forest Campground, and now I'm headed to Bob Lake National Forest Campground. Today I'll hike 10 miles, making a trip total of 120 I'll be on grand, excuse me, sand and gravel roads and a bug factor of one. It's cloudy and there is scattered rain during the day. Of all the paths that you take in life, make sure a few of them are dirt. And that is an anonymous quote. Well, I feel like crap. Why did I drink those Bud Lights last night? I ought to listen to my own advice since I tell others I get nasty headaches from drinking any amount of an Anheuser-Busch product. It's about 10.45 in the morning. It's definitely time to get up. Looks like I am the early bird rising early, beating the points and my sister to the punch. I have to because it will take me a while to pack my stuff. Starting to get my morning procedure under control, I'm able to eat, change clothes, and pack in about an hour. Let's see how I do today. First thing is to boil some water for my hot chocolate. Using a 16-ounce stainless steel cup, I place it on my gas stove burner. The stove is made in France. The fuel, half butane, half propane, burns fast and efficient. The fuel cartridge are half a kilogram and last longer than I had planned. I only used about one quarter of my first cartridge. I'm currently on my second cartridge and I still have a full one in reserve. I'll let my sister bring back the full one. I should be getting my next drop in four or five days. I have enough fuel until then. It only takes three minutes to boil my water. Hot cocoa comes in plastic MRE envelopes. MRE, meaning meals ready to eat, are meals created by the military, and these particular meals were created for the United States Marine Corps. Since my brother is a Marine, well, he's actually out now, but you know he says once a Marine, always a Marine, um, he kept some of his leftover provisions and uh, that I spread out into my food boxes. Cold cereal, grape nuts, is the main fare. I still feel like crap, and I hope grape nuts, grape nuts going down will do me well. I clumsily consume my cereal while sipping my hot cocoa. I clean my dishes using a scant amount of water, a downed conifer for a scrubber, and a few drops of Camp Suds, which is, again, biodegradable soap. I always pick a designated spot away from my campsite to clean, deposit leftovers, wash dishes, etc. Okay, now it's time to pack up. I take down my rain fly, roll up my bedroll, fold up my visqueen, and stuff my sleeping bag into the stuff sack. Next, I have to put my clothes bag in the bottom compartment of my pack. After I have all my clothes on I need for the day, I stuff the rest into the sack that's about the size of a plastic grocery bag. Once stuffed, I stuff this bag into its proper place and zip up the compartment. I have set aside the top compartment of my backpack for food, and it's 50% larger in volume and three times as heavy as my clothes. I open the top uh, partition as wide as possible and drop the sack into the hole. I have to push it into place since it is quite large. On top of this is about four inches of space where I put my dishes. My side pockets hold water, toiletries, bug dope, and other accessories. 
I get those squared away, and it's time to lash all my loose equipment to the bag. Using two bungee cords, I have to attach my bag, bedroll, sandals, rope, and vestibule to my pack. The vestibule goes on top, sleeping bag goes next, and sits about where my food does. The bedroll is next, and my sandals and rope dangle at the bottom. Of course, I lash my stainless steel cup so it bangs against the bottom bar. After attaching all my equipment, I notice it's about 11.45 a.m. Not bad, eh? Only one hour. By this point, everyone else is up and they're taking down the pop-up. I decide to leave after they do. I had a good time last night. When they first pulled up, I thought they were going to be a rowdy bunch. We kept noise to a minimum, and uh, even the music was on a minimum. We played euchre, and we talked over a raging fire. I wanted a small fire. Small, like the size of my fist. That small. But not the LaPointe's. They wanted, they said to me, and I quote, a raging white man fire. And they said this with a chuckle. At this point, my sister and her friends are in the process of tearing down camp. This means picking up the beer cans and attaching the pop-up to the Ford Bronco. All this takes about 15 minutes. It was nice to meet you. And if you ever write a book about your trip, I will buy one provided you sign it for me, Sean says, shaking my hand. Heidi hoes go around and they all load up, except for Julie. Where are we going to see you next, she says. Pull out my maps, and I draw her attention to my route. Plan on going to Bob Lake today. Tomorrow I'm shooting for Silver Mountain or quite possibly Sturgeon Gorge Campground. I also need you to go to an ATM and get me some money. I have enough for tonight, but I will not for the next day, I say, handing her my ATM card. Sure, no problem. Uh, We'll probably not see you tomorrow, but we'll meet up with you somewhere between Silver Mountain and Sturgeon Gorge. Great, thanks, and away they go. My route today is going to be back up the Forest Service Road to M28, backtracking to the east about three miles total. This takes me a little bit off the guilt I'm taking, that I'm carrying for taking that ride yesterday. I just keep telling myself that was not those damn drunk fishermen. After walking on M28, I will ru- turn south on Dishno Road. This is a paved road that will traverse through Russo. Then I'll come to a T at Pori Road. Pori Road borders Ontonagon and Houghton Counties. This is a Forest Service road that will go about two miles until I see a sign for Bob Lake National Forest Campground. Walking west on M38, I feel like I'm going backwards in time to get to Dishnell Road. I could have finished up my day the day before yesterday, even though it would have been after dark. My feet were killing me, but the guilt of yesterday's sin overwhelms the pain. I'm sure I would have taken enough breaks to delay my arrival until after dark. Cars are whizzing by me. Suspended in time, I notice that every tree, bird, and bug flying up into my face. These teeny bugs are my entertainment. I enjoy the feel of every pebble under my foot. I visualize the grasshoppers fleeing for their lives as I walk the median. A grasshopper would be wiped off my windshield if I was driving my car. I do not appreciate wildlife in my cocoon of a car. It is a nuisance. Walking into traffic keeps you on your toes. I am sure I will have hundreds, if not thousands, of internal combustion wheelchairs whiz by me. A few passing motorists wave at me. Some honk in what I hope is an, an appreciation of my task. Most, however, have a glazed look and are oblivious to my movements. To them, I am just another grasshopper, albeit a big one. We, need, we humans need to slow down and soak up what is around us on occasion. 
Boy, am I ever doing that. The forest seems so full of life. How can, how can one enjoy that hurtling down a highway? I'm doing this in a trance. I see my destination in the distance, but I am focusing my attention to this point on the right of way. I am observant to the wildlife around me. Also, I am paying attention to the traffic. A delicate balance to enjoy myself, stay on track, but not get hit by a car. Additional road is a paved road, and it looks seldom used. First, there seems to be hardly any homes on this road, and second, where does it go? Nowhere. However, there is a sign at this intersection of M38 Additional Road, and it reads, World Famous Russo Bar, 4 miles. Great, a mile marker. This road must lead somewhere. I'm still suffering from a hangover, so I'd sit down and uh, contemplate my options right now. Let's see how I feel in a little while. Clang, clang, clang. I have to remind myself my cup rattles on my backpack. The road is wide with an ample right-of-way, no doubt, for snowmobiles. The surroundings on the hills are mostly jack and red pine with a dash of red maples. In the valleys, which I am sure are usually wet, are black spruce, balsam fir with a few cedars. Clang, 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 my cup continues to fill the forest with this metallic reverberation. I see the famous bar and its small A-frame wood building projecting off what looks like someone's trailer. Outside, a motorcycle and two large trucks. There's a phone sign outside. Do I go in? I still feel like crap. Nah, I'll skip by this one. As I walk by, I glance towards the bar, which does not look too busy. Why is it so world famous? Well, my question is answered with another sign. World famous Russo Bar. Stop in or go thirsty. Nearest bar is 50 miles away. Wow, I look at my map. The nearest town is Rockland, Mass City, and Greenland to the north. Aunt Naga must be the nearest town with a bar. Named for a township supervisor who gave 26 years of service, Russo used to be a stop on the Chicago, Minneapolis, and St. Paul Railroad. Originally called Rubicon, Rousseau comprises a few trailers in this famous bar. Looking to my right is a beautiful field full of black-eyed Susans, goldenrods, and other colorful flowers. In the distance, a farm appears ready to fall off the horizon. In the foreground, cattails choke the ditch. I can't resist. I take a photo. Photography does not describe what I am doing. Picture taking is more like it because I'm using those little disposable cameras. Fuji's. I bought about 10 for about 3 bucks a piece. They were on sale for 5 bucks and I had 10 and $2 off coupons. Not bad. Each camera costs 3 bucks each. I absorb the moment, lock it away into my memory. Click. Looking down, I see, huh, of all things, a sidewalk. I'm in the heart of nowhere. And here is a sidewalk. I continue to amble, letting the pavement lead the way. About 200 feet later, an intersection that reads Forest Highway 1700 and Pori Road. Forest Highway 1700 goes to the west. Pori goes south another 100 feet and then turns left. I reach the turn as the sidewalk leads me, and there's a set of railroad tracks about 200 feet away to my right. There's a trailer, and the tracks go about 50 feet from it. I will bet that this used to be a lumber town and that had money for sidewalks at one time. 
This town probably dried up as quickly as the cement on which they walked. Pori Road turns to gravel, then loose sand. Rousseau had a few houses on the gravel road that turns into a true forest road. It's quite open in this area, a few trees along the road, and it's sandy and open. The road is engraved into the sand, and a road bank about three feet high is an outcome. I draw closer upon a grove of red pines, obviously planted in straight rows. Since they are to my south, casting the required shade for lunch, I sit, eat, enjoy the peace and quiet. Next thing I know, I'm sleeping. I wonder, half-sleeping, what loggers or anyone living in this area would think of me hiking through their forest. I especially wonder if they think I have a problem with lumbering taking place in this area. I visualize my response. No, sir, I do not have any problem with logging. We need paper products. I do have a problem with poor forestry management, though. Daydreaming, I wonder if the Ottawa National Forest has some sort of management plan or policy to guide their lumbering in a sustainable fashion. I see good forestry practices taking place. I just wonder if they are coordinated into some sort of plan. Strolling down the dirt road, encountering logging trucks chock full of logs, they pass me ever so slowly. The truckers, they always wave to me, so I must not be so bad after all. This is the first area of my trip that logging is truly noticeable. I see boundary permits all over the place. I also view survey markers, flagging tape, and crude roads weaving into the forest. Several types of forestry are present here. Used for collecting jack pines and poplar, the clear cut is one type of forestry common to this area. Most brainwashed Americans believe a clear cut is an evil type of forestry. But if done properly, a clear cut is far from evil. Pines, many of them need open areas to regenerate new trees. Naturally, a fire would burn down all the trees. Jack pine, depending on fire to open its cones, freeing its seeds, is the first to grow back. If you clear-cut jack pine but do not burn off the remaining undergrowth, it will not grow back as dense as it was originally. That is why foresters should burn off the clear-cut to encourage new jack pine growth. However, the, the largest parts of the forest don't. Instead, fast-growing poplar grows back. Commonly used for paper production, poplar is a favored broadleaf tree by foresters. There is a greater demand for poplar to make paper than jack pine for whatever it is used for. This may explain why foresters don't burn off the remaining wood. They want the poplar. Another type of a management style is a selective cut. Intermingled with the jack pines are red maples. Red maple, or called soft maple, is used for building materials. Foresters will go in and remove only red maples and those over only a certain size, leaving everything else behind. Not as profitable as clear cutting, it, it does reduce erosion and has a lesser effect on forest diversity. And red pines, frankly, are too numerous in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Uh, they need to be thinned out because we have not had the forest fires we used to have that used to control their numbers. So these are the two forestry practices I see here. Pori Road turns west and is on the Ontonagon Houghton County line. I reach Bob Lake Road, which leads, of course, to Bob Lake. Walking down this road, I notice many swamp species comprising tamarack, cedar, black spruce, and red maple. Looking at the ground, there is no water. I reach a bridge where I can see a sign, Levesque Creek. Supposedly a river, maybe a stream of flowing water it was in its past life. It's currently reduced to a basin of motionless rocks. 
drier than a minister on a Sunday morning. I wonder if there is any water in the lake. Walking the campground entrance road takes me from a heavily logged area into a forest that has remained undisturbed for about 50 years. White birch, red maple, white pine, and hemlock abounds. A respectable ground layer of bunchberry, clintonia, and some blueberries sprout from the dry soil. I can distinguish a lake about 100 acres in size through the trees. Encircled by a swamp, there isn't a house on it. Slowly treading into the campground, I detect I am only of a handful of campers. There are the campground hosts and two other groups. Of course, I pick the first site that is closest to the bathrooms. I fling my stuff onto the picnic table. I visit the contact station to register. There is a map of the area smack dab in the middle of the Ottawa. I even see the North Country Trail on the map. It skirts right through the campground. Still leery of bear, but mostly because of my rendezvous that's going to take place, I have to stick to roads. I go back to my site, heat supper, and take it easy. Facing the road, I see people go by. A woman, about 40, walks down the path. Howdy, neighbor, I say. Hi, she says back, towing a small child along with her. Fifteen minutes pass, and the lady, child, and her husband show up. My wife said there was someone on foot, and I had to come see for myself. Is that true? Says the man, about 50, wearing shorts and suspenders. He has a pot belly, wearing a baseball cap, and he's holding an axe. He looks like an awful lot like my college roommate, Paul Eppel. Yes, sir, I am. Where are you going, he asks. The Mackinac Bridge. Holy cow, he says. That's a long walk. What, two, three hundred miles? Well, closer to five hundred. So we talk about my trip, my food, how I'm getting money. I, of course, want to know one thing. Hey, do you know how the bears are in the area? Huh. Um, well, <laughs> funny you should ask. The DNR releases all the problem bear in this area here. <laughs> so I just wonder to myself, why is it that when thoughtless humans feed and socialize bears, the captured problem Bruins are discarded in the backcountry? In the backcountry, they will torment others and myself, even though we will not offer them a morsel of food. The DNR should release problem bears in the backyards of the offending humans, not punish those of us who behave. <laughs> Great. Are they a problem here? Not that we know of, he responds. I feel a little nervous, but I can rest assured around the ten or so people in the campground, I guess I'll hang my bear sack in a tree tonight. Where are you from? It was obvious that they were not born and raised here. No youper accent. Skaney, we moved here from Jackson. No kidding, I live in Battle Creek, I say, rather excited. I continue to talk to Linda as her husband, Ken Jones, cuts wood left on my site with an axe. He then grabs his chainsaw and cuts the rest for me. What a pleasant family. Humans are so civil up here. Must be something in the water. I find out that Linda knows West Boyd of the North Country Trail Association and a few others in the clan. I tell them about my experience in Trap Hills. Lacking use, the trail condition results in the little use of the North Country Trail in this area as well. I would be better to stay on roads, as they advised me. They leave, I build a council fire, and put away my gear in a fashion to minimize their exposure to the pending rainfall that may be coming tonight. I settle in with my crime and punishment. All right. So, I'm moving through the Ottawa National Forest. And uh, 
Still sticking to roads, mostly because I have to rendezvous with people. It makes it easy for them to find me, and I'm still a little spooked by bears as well. So that's just the way it's going to be for a little while. Well, thanks for joining me on Trail Tales, and uh, we will see you again.